and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And again, welcome back to Horror Month, where I'm trying to crank out as many obscure, underloved horror movies as I can in the month of October. And today's episode is no exception. This is a uh, little anthology movie from 1990 called Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, which is one of those movies I've always had a special affinity for. And it's one you really don't ever hear talked about anymore. Like, I don't know when the last time I heard anybody mention this movie. And I don't even know where you can find it anymore. I just happen to own the DVD. I've owned it for years. So it's one of these movies. I want to get this one back into the public consciousness because this is one of these fun little anthology movies that, like, it's nowhere near as well known as Creepshow. But I would make the argument I think it's better than Creepshow. And my guest for this episode, um, I have not met him before. He was uh, introduced to me as a fellow podcaster, fellow lover of horror movies, and a fellow lover of obscure movies and underloved movies, which, again, near and dear to my heart. So this guy basically does what I do on his own podcast. So I'm very excited to meet him for the first time and talk about Tales from the Dark Side. Welcome to the show, Donnie McHenry. Hey, thanks, Mario. Um, and yeah, real quick little plug. I, that's exactly what I do. So I'm a co-host. We've, we've got a trio. It's me, Drew, and Emily, and, and we run a podcast called the Psychotronica Podcast, and it's a podcast for a forgotten film, and we do kind of the same thing. We, we love those underloved, underappreciated movies. So when I heard about you, Mario, I was real excited to kind of get on here, reach out to you, and uh when you suggested Tales from the Dark Side, I got really excited. This is a movie just like you. It's super near and dear to me. Yeah, um, I, I use this phrase a lot on staff picks, but this feels kind of like the key master meeting the gatekeeper for the first time. I'm not sure we were meant to be on a podcast together. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. So uh, tell people a little more about your podcast, how they can find it. We'll do this plug at the end, but I'm very intrigued by what you do. Sure, sure. So um, my buddy Drew had suggested it. So it's Psychotronica, you know, P-S-Y-C-H-O-T-R-O-N-I-C-A. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Drew says wherever you get your podcast. He does the technical stuff. I just talk on it and do some of the research. But he says he can get it wherever that is. And it's based uh, on this. There's these two volumes, the Psychotronic encyclopedia of films um where this wheeling guy just i mean that's exactly what they are they're encyclopedic you can search um you know go right down the list they're massive tomes on these forgotten movies and some of them you know we had a whole episode where we're like aliens i don't know if that should be in here robocop okay terminator 2 all right <laughs> but he covers a lot of stuff okay yeah i'm very excited because it sounds like you know your stuff and one of the things on Staff Picks is I have a vast array of different guests, people that absolutely know their movies inside and out, who do podcasts all the time. I have absolute newbies who I really have to twist their arm to get them to come on and talk about a movie they kind of like. So <laughs> you are the best of both worlds. I'm very excited about this one. We're, I'm a newbie with podcasting, right? We're relatively infancy there, but I am an avid movie buff. I've got just my horror Blu-ray and DVD collection is probably 1,400 titles of physical horror. And then I've got a whole other, about that much of all the other genres that I collect as well. Wow, that's that's way more than me. People think I own a lot of movies. I own nothing like that amount. Just I think my, my horror collection is only like 300. 
That's still more than 99% of, you know, people you talk to. People go, why don't you, don't you have Netflix? I go, you don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, perfect example, a movie like Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, I, I don't need to see where it's streaming. I have the Scream Factory Blu-ray. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, thank you so much, because I get, I get made fun of a lot for that. People, like, call me, okay, boomer and old man and stuff, because I still have physical media, and I just never trusted streaming they're never going to have the movies that i want to see and i would never turn over power of what i can see and what i can't see to like a, a network or like a streaming service so like thank god i finally meet someone like you who collects these things like i always have yeah i just love having them there and i love streaming too you know especially as a horror fan you know i'm a big fan of shutter mm -hmm. um and there's a lot of stuff that i've been introduced to through that service but just to me i'm a, I'm a sucker for special features i'm kind of a cinephile not not super aggressive with it but they sound better and they look better on blu-ray and 4k you know than they will streaming i don't have to worry about buffering or anything else i just love it <laughs> it's funny you brought that up the concept of physical media because it's going to tie into this movie very nicely here's a fun known a fun little known mario fact for my listeners tales from the dark side was the very first movie i ever owned on vhs <laughs> wow I know no one else in the world will say that. And I'll give a little backstory there that I used to tape movies. Uh, I'm sure you're close to my age. We'd you'd tape movies off TV. You'd kind of do three to a VHS tape. Were, were you familiar with that concept? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I tape all these movies off Showtime and HBO and stuff. And one day my parents were like, you know, maybe we'll just start buying you some movies. And this is like 1991. This is Christmas 1991. And I'm like, I had no concept why a person would buy a VHS tape, because you could get three on a tape if you'd made it yourself. Yep. And so they just asked, what movies do you like? And I said, I named a couple horror movies, I named a couple comedies. And for Christmas in 1991, I got Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, and I got Weekend at Bernie's, which is the greatest double feature ever. Yeah, that <laughs> is a great double feature. <laughs> so anyway, this was my first. And as they say, you never forget your first. Nope. <laughs> Okay, so before we get into the plot of this movie, kind of explain your history with this movie. How do you know about it? Like, did you see it in the theater? Like, why is this movie near and dear to your heart? So I didn't see it in the theater. Um, so I'm, I'm 36, so I would have been, what would I have been? This came out, in, yeah, I would have been like four when it came out in the theater. So, but I, it's one of those movies for me as a kid that, you know, watched a lot of TV as a kid. I spent a lot of time visiting my grandparents who would basically just, Hey, Donnie's here. Let's make some burgers. Let's hang out a little and go. You, you can go in the back den and watch whatever you want for the rest of the weekend. And I would watch a lot of sci-fi um, and, and just whatever movie channels they have. And I feel like I could have seen it there. It's just one of those ones I, I'd always feel like I've known about. And, and as I got older and started to, you know, look into stuff and really, you know, get interested in this stuff. I mean, I've always been a fan of um horror anthology television as well so you know i've got tales from the dark side on dvd i've got tales from the crypt on dvd i've even got do you ever see the show monsters yeah i used to watch that yep i've got that on dvd like uh, the the entire series runs on all of those and uh this is one that's just always stuck out to me as one that i've always really enjoyed and and we'll get into why when we get into it but i, I like the effects i i particularly really enjoy one of the uh stories in it and it's just it's kind of it feels like it's always been there as something that i knew and, and felt like not like oh it's my secret but like yeah you don't know about tales from the dark side of the movie you know let me tell you about it because you've never heard of it and it's really good 
Uh, a quick aside, do you own Friday the 13th, the series, on uh, DVD? That I do not. I... <laughs> <laughs> and I don't have Freddy's Nightmares either, but I, I do have the crazy Scream Factory Friday the 13th Blu-ray set they put out a couple <laughs> years ago. Did you ever see the Friday the 13th TV show? No. I've heard about it, I've read a little bit about it, but I've never actually seen it. All right. Well, there's a good uh, recommendation from my listeners right off the start. Go track down that if you want something obscure from the 90s. I believe it was in the 90s. And it's basically what a, a guy and this girl own a haunted curio shop. And every single episode's about some haunted item they sell. And it has nothing to do with the movie, but it's still kind of a cool show. Right. <laughs> okay. I will tell my history of this movie. Uh I grew up not being allowed to watch R-rated movies. This is kind of a running joke on staff picks. I, <laughs> I didn't see most of these movies until later. Except this is one of the first R-rated movies I ever saw in the theater. And I will say why. Because uh, I used to be in marching band in high school. I grew up in Seattle. I was in marching band. And every year we had this thing up in Victoria, British Columbia called the Victoria Day Parade. And they'd send our marching band up into this parade. So basically, they would unleash our entire marching band up in Victoria, Canada for four days every year in May. And this is back in the day when there's no such thing as chaperones or parental consent. Like, they would literally just let us run wild. If a 16-year-old kid just running wild in Victoria, and they're like, come back to the hotel at night. Like, that's literally <laughs> it. So, wow. every, yeah, every year, my friend Brian and I would make it a point to watch an R-rated movie in Canada because they wouldn't check our age, they didn't care. And so the first year, 1989, my freshman year of high school in Victoria, I saw See No Evil, Hear No Evil, the Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder movie. Very excited about that. And the second year, 1990, I saw this movie in the theater. So this may be the first horror movie, the first R-rated horror movie I ever saw in the theater. So like anthology horror movies to me will always be based around this one because this might have been the first one I ever saw. Interesting. Question for you. How, how packed was the theater? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, it was fairly packed. It would have been opening weekend. So, yeah, it was, I mean, 70% packed. It was a smaller theater. Back then, the theaters were smaller. Yep. But it, it was not empty or anything. This was a fairly decent hit, if I recall. Yeah, I'm not sure how well it did. I should have looked that up. And, of course, I was in Canada. I'm not sure that's representative of anything in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> but in Victoria, British Columbia, people seem to enjoy this movie. Excellent. Okay, before we get into the plot, I want to talk about the history of horror anthologies, just because you seem like you're probably very well-versed in this. I said at the start, this might be my favorite horror anthology. Is that blasphemy to put this over Creepshow? No, I don't think so. I I love Creepshow. Um, for the, I love Tom Atkins. I am obsessed. I, I'm obsessive. Like I'm a, I'm a huge, huge obsessive Stephen King fan to the point where I've got every novel he's got in hardcover. I've got a whole tattoo sleeve dedicated to Stephen King. <laughs> so Creepshow is special to me. I love Romero. So, you know, I love that. But at the end of the day, I mean, Tales from the Dark Side is basically the Creepshow 3 that never was. I mean, it's so to say that it's better than Creepshow. I don't think that's blasphemy because it, it is a Creepshow movie for all intents and purposes. Now, why don't you elaborate on that? Because I have never really heard that. Like, I know Creepshow. I know Creepshow 2. I know Tales from the Dark Side. I never really read up on how they all interrelate with one another. So why is this considered Creepshow 3? So um, you've got Creepshow, right? And this is, you know, the melding of Stephen King and George Romero. They got together and they did Creepshow. Um, and then, you know, we've got Creepshow 2. It's them back together again. And then 
there was an idea to make a creep show television series, and that ended up becoming Romero's series, Tales from the Dark Side. Um, it, it didn't get the creep show moniker. It became Tales from the Dark Side. And it's not that because there is a creep show three. And as far as I'm concerned, there isn't a creep show three <laughs> because it's terrible and has none of the same crew. To my knowledge, it's just not the same creep show. But um, this movie, I mean, you've got, you know, one of these stories is based off Stephen King, you know, Cat from Hell. You've got George Romero um, who penned that. So, you know, you've got Romero and King teamed up again on you know, in the background, you've got Nicotero, Robert Kurtzman on special effects. Just a lot of the crew um, that worked on Creepshow worked on this film as well. Um, there's a quote from Tom Savini, actually, that, you know, him and a lot of people in the industry, you know, say that this is Creepshow 3. That's good. I didn't realize they'd said that because, yeah, it really does feel like a Creepshow movie. And like like the first Creepshow, I'm not going to get too far into this, but like. There's only one of the stories I really love in the first Creep Show. That's the one with Leslie Nielsen, the something to tide you over. Oh, uh, <laughs> Leslie's great in it. And then in the second Creep Show, like it doesn't really do it for me, even though I love The Raft. That's one of my all-time favorite Stephen King short stories. Yep. So I love that. But we get to this one, Tales from the Dark Side. And admittedly, I think maybe only one of these three stories is an absolute masterpiece. But I do think it might be the best of any move, any of the movies in any of the Creep Show movies. Like... I think I'm going to I'm going to spoil it. I personally think Lover's Vow is the best of the three. Is that the one that you like? Um, I'm with you on that. I, yeah. Lover's Vow, the third story in Tales from the Dark Side, is freaking unbelievable. And I personally think it's better than anything in the first Creep Shows. But again, I would listen to arguments because I know pe most people like Creep Show. Yeah, Creep Show is great. I, I, I can see it. I mean, so here's. I also love the crate and creep show because when I was a kid, it scared like it legitimately terrified me. I watched that as a very young kid, home alone. Um, but like you kind of said, th this movie, Tales from the Dark Side, I agree. Lovers' Vow is probably the strong, definitely the strongest entry. But I think they're all good, and each of the creep show movies has one that I'm like, eh. You know, I could skip it every time I watched it. You know, where all of these I think are good. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a good way of saying it. There's not really, like, the other two stories aren't really standouts, but they're not weak either. They're just, I mean, there's something interesting. We'll definitely talk about Lot 249, the the cast they somehow assembled for this thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, before we get into Tales from the Dark Side, I just want to fill people in. Horror anthology movies did not start with Creepshow. I know a lot of people think horror started in the 80s. That's not true. They were doing these British horror anthologies back in the 60s and 70s. There's one that I really like. I think it's called From Beyond the Grave with uh, Donald Pleasance and his daughter. I think she's in there. Uh, they had Trilogy of Terror, which I actually I've already done on Staff Picks. Coincidentally, if I plan this out right, you have already heard that episode before I post this one because that's another Horror Month episode I'm doing. Have you ever seen Trilogy of Terror? I've heard of it. I have yet to see it. That's one you should seek out. That one's fun. But horror anthologies are a thing. This has been a known thing throughout history. Creepshow kind of made them big again. And then we kept going. And then in 1990, we get Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, which admittedly has nothing to do with a TV show. You don't have to have any prior knowledge. It's just three fun little scary stories that I did notice it's billed as a comedy horror anthology on Wikipedia, but I wouldn't really call it comedy. No, I wouldn't either. So, yeah, so it, it plays it pretty straight. And, again, this movie was like a mild hit. It wasn't a bomb. It wasn't, like, a huge hit. 
and then for some reason it just disappeared. Now, is that your experience as well that you really can't find this movie anywhere anymore? So I've got it, and I don't know because they only you know when they're out of print, they're out of print. But one of the companies that I love is a a, a Scream Factory. It's like a boutique Blu-ray releasing company, and they're doing a lot of 4Ks now too, and they're great. So that's why I have it. Um, but that's what they do. They, you know, recover these movies that, you know, a lot of them, there probably is a DVD of Tales from the Dark. Yeah, you said you have it on DVD, right? Yeah, it's an older one. Yeah, a lot of the releases they do are like, you you know, if there's a VHS, you know, there hasn't been a VHS print in 20 years, and they'll get them in with tons of um, special features and stuff like that. So that's that's why I have it, but I've never seen it you know when you go to best buy and go to the horror section it's not something that you're going to find there you know with some of the bigger you know you can go and find a halloween movie or friday the 13th you know of course those are giant franchises but yeah it's and it's not one i hear get talked about a lot when people you know talk about older horror movies yeah i mean you yourself talk to people about horror movies you do podcasts on horror movies this just is not a movie that ever comes up for whatever reason Mm mm-hmm Okay, we're going to delve into this again. This is a movie I could talk about off the top of my head. I didn't really have to take notes because, like, again, first movie I ever owned on VHS. So, like, I've seen this movie hundreds of times. I know every little beat. But before we get into this, I know you love obscure movies. You love movies that not everyone knows. Are there any anthologies I didn't mention earlier that you would recommend to people besides the ones that I kind of brought up already? So one of the ones I would absolutely recommend is um... – one you already covered and I listened to the episode before we recorded this to get a feel on, you know, what I was in for. And that's uh trick or treat. I adore that movie. That's probably, you know, these movies I have nostalgia with. I watched them as a child, but trick or treat may be one of the better horror anthologies that I, I can think of just that I absolutely enjoy um, through and through. Yeah. That, I'm glad you brought that up. I personally think that's, probably the best horror anthology I've ever seen. No no disrespect to Tales from the Dark Side, which we're about to talk about, but Trick or Treat is outstanding. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a cut above the rest for sure. It's just very well done. Well executed, well shot. There's nothing bad I can say about it. Okay, I'm going to throw a really obscure one at you just to see if you've heard of this one before. Because I, I think I've met maybe two people in my life who know this movie. So back in the 90s, we had a video store near us that had the special. It was any any movie that wasn't a new release. You could go in there and you could get seven movies for seven nights for seven bucks. Oh, wow. Which was the most fantastic deal for me, who never went outside and never talked to anybody. So if you wanted to learn as many obscure movies as you could, that was the way to do it. I just rent all these movies all the time, seven at a time, just go through them. So I would learn all these movies, and that's how I know so much obscure stuff. There's a horror anthology from the 90s, and they're all Western-based, and it's called Grim Prairie Tales. Have you ever heard of that movie? I have never. <laughs> Grim Prairie Tales? I believe that's the name, Grim Prairie Tales. I will have to look that up. It is. Yep. Grim Prairie Tales. And it's got um, it's got our guy in it. Oh, my God, I'm drawing a blank on his name. He's the voice of Chucky. Well, I know what James Earl Jones is in it. I think... Uh... Yep, James Earl Jones, Brad Dourif, Mark <laughs> McClure, yep. I'm telling people, that movie 
is terrible. It's not worth your time at all. But there's one story in that movie I've never got out of my head in 30 years. And I'm going to spoil it for you just because there's not a chance in hell I'm doing Grim Prairie Tales on staff picks. <laughs> it's about this uh, woman who travels the Old West, and she's like a, like a broken down carriage and stuff, and she's, I think she's pregnant or something. I kind of forget. And she's, this this cowboy comes across her and wants to help her out because she's just this lonely wandering woman in the in the West. And at some point, they become romantic and they have sex and blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the episode, her vagina literally opens up and devours him. She's got, the, she's a walking vagina monster that just eats cowboys. Jesus. And I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> if anyone wants to watch a really odd anthology just watch that last part with uh with mark mcclure or whatever what is his name mark uh jimmy olsen yeah i believe that is it yeah mark because when i looked it up yeah it said mark mcclure on there yeah he's the one who gets eaten and it's the most bizarre story you've ever seen but these are the kind of movies when you're watching seven movies for seven nights for seven bucks repeatedly <laughs> that reminded me of one that i forgot about because now i'm like oh man bad ones and i this is not a great one uh have you ever seen dead time stories yeah, why do I know that? I know that. I'm trying to remember why. I have seen it. It's an 86 horror anthology. Um, I don't know why you know it, because it's not very memorable. I own it, because it's one of the ones I blind bought from Screen Factory, so I own the Blu-ray, because Savini directed one of the um, segments on it, but it is... I won't get rid of it, because I'm, I'm a fiend for my collection, and it fills out another spot on my case, but I will probably never watch it again. <laughs> Okay, so this is, my for my listeners, this is what you're in for in this episode. Two guys who are very, very familiar with obscure little shit like this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's talk about Tales from the Dark Side. Again, 1990, uh, fairly decent hit. They, they were going to make a sequel to it. They never actually did. And I was just watching the trailer for it earlier today, and the trailer really hypes up, you know, it's from Stephen King, the master of horror, and... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes, and uh, George Romero from Night of the Living Dead, and I forgot the last guy, Michael McDowell, the creator of Beetlejuice, which maybe doesn't fit with the other three as strongly, but ironically, he's the one who writes the best story in this. Yes, it is. Lover's Vile is the best story. Just like Creepshow, this movie is, uh, well, I guess those are, it's five stories in Creepshow. This one has three. It's got three, and then it's got a wraparound, which kind of ties all the stories together. So let's open with the wraparound story, which has got to star the least likely person to star in a horror anthology ever. Yeah, she got a heart of glass. So who would that be, for people who don't get that reference? You know, I can't remember her name, but it's Blondie. I don't remember what her real name is, because to me, she's always been Blondie. Yes, Deborah Harry. Uh, people don't remember. I don't know if they know this. She went through a phase where she was an actress for a while, and it didn't always work out. But in this movie, she is the star of our wraparound story, and she plays a suburban housewife, like in any town, USA, house mom, who has kidnapped a paper boy, and she's going to eat him alive and cook him which is a fun little wraparound. I've always liked this. I, I, I think I prefer this wraparound to most of the Creepshow movies, to be honest. Yeah, well, I don't know. I love Creepshow ones because we got Stephen King's son, uh, who is now a novelist, Joe Hill is in it, and we got Tom Atkins, who I just, I love Atkins. But this one's a good one. I, I like this one. I like the little hints in it, like, you know, 
it, when it when it goes in, it just starts this slow. Well, here, do you want me to start going into how the intro goes? Absolutely, go for it. All right, so you know we start. You know we, we're panning out. We got this music. It's a nice bright day out. This lady's got this mint, you know, 1989 Jeep Cherokee. She gets into and she backs up without looking behind her. It made me a little nervous, but then she did. She nobody was there. So she's driving, you know, driving through town, gets home. And then the camera's in the house painting was her walking in the door. And on the left, you can see a witch's broom, you know, and it definitely does not look like any broom that you'd be sweeping up uh, any dust with. So that's kind of a little, little hint there that, that something's awry on here. And she picks up her nice nineties uh, cordless telephone and she's talking about what they're going to be drinking and what they're going to be drinking out of because they got the dinner party and she's going all out on it, which she's got the kitchen to go all out on it. That kitchen. <laughs> I mean, she's got a commercial grade fridge, this massive commercial grade stove, which there's a reason to have a, an oven that big. And then, uh, yeah, she opens her pantry and it turns out the pantry looks a little bit older than the rest of the kitchen. And it's got a child trapped in it because <laughs> she is a witch and she is going to cook this boy. I was I was just listening to the uh, director's commentary on the DVD a while back, and and the director just thought it was the funniest thing ever that he had this witch who was like a suburban house mom, like mom USA waving to the postman, just driving to her suburban home, played by Deborah Harry of all people, who he says has got to be the least normal housewife ever. Like this is a woman who is like Studio 54. She's like the queen of punk rock. He's like, I just thought it was hilarious that she played the suburban housewife because it's so funny to me that she would be the lead. <laughs> right. I had to do a double take and look it up, you know, um, when I first realized it because I didn't know that's who it was when I was younger watching this movie. It was a couple years ago and I'm like, looked it up and then I had to look up Blondie because it says, you know, Deborah Harry. And I'm like, who is that? I thought it was Blondie. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it would make sense that she doesn't act as Blondie. <laughs> Yeah, we get the real name. Although that does explain why her kitchen is so big, because that Blondie money was pretty good over the years. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, so she's got a pantry with a little boy trapped inside who is Matthew Lawrence, the little brother of Joey Lawrence, who was much better known from the Lawrence family. But, yeah, so he's a paper boy. He's come around collecting. She's kidnapped him. She's got him locked in a pantry. And tonight is the big dinner party where she's going to eviscerate him, pull out his innards, and then cook him alive, and then serve him to her dinner guests. Who we can only assume are also witches and war warlocks. They don't say it, but who else could they be? I would assume so, but then again, I think this is California, so you never know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so the whole wraparound story is little, uh, I forget his name, I just call him Matthew Lawrence. He's, he's trapped in this little dungeon, and she's like, I'm going to cook you. I have to figure out how long it, it takes to cook a little boy and he's like no no please don't cook me uh uh i got a book in here and she apparently threw him what a, she threw him a huge uh, book of tales from the dark side right yep tales from the dark side the book that she loved when she was a kid that she's read through and she's given him to read and it's one of those things where i get anal about the stupidest stuff in movies and my wife is constantly you know like donnie we're watching star wars and you're gonna argue about you know that the the TIE fighter is moving too fast for her to jump over it. Like it's star Wars. And I'm like, I guess, but the move, the book was clearly just pressed, you know, as a prop piece for the movie. And I'm like, well, if this was the old witch's book, wouldn't it be a little beat up around the edges? I mean, it is brand new. But anyway, I also love that he's going to read her three stories and everyone is as if she's never heard it before, even though theoretically this was her favorite book. 
Yeah, my favorite book, but I forgot all the stories in it. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, she's, she's tossed him this book. And again, it's a neat little tie-in with the brand name, Tales from the Dark Side, which, if people don't know, was a TV show back in the 80s, competitor to The Twilight Zone. Fun show. And apparently there was a book about it. She's thrown it into him. And this is his stall tactic. He's like, please don't cut me open, gut me like a fish. I want to read you some of these stories. These are great stories. Don't you want to hear them? So that's the setup for this movie. And I do like the setup where he says, I want to read you this first one. It's about these college guys. And she's like, is it a love story? And he's like, no, but it's good. I, I like the setup that we're going to get to the third one, which is the love story, which we're going to build up to that through the course of the movie. So, so let's talk about this first story. Lot 249. Written by Arthur Conan Doyle. This is an old, uh, very old story written by the guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes. Uh, this is one of those stories that most people would remember from this movie. It's uh, maybe the goriest. I guess that's debatable. <laughs> They're all kind of gory, come to think of it. But yeah, yeah, kind of set this one up for people. What's the basic story here? So the basic story is we've we've got we've got some frat boys, right? These these well-to-do college guys. Handsome devils, right? We got Christian Slater, um, and then his buddy, who honestly, I don't know who he is, and I didn't look him up. But they're, they're hanging out, and they're talking about, you know, this issue. Christian Slater's sister, who is Julianne Moore, and apparently this was actually her first feature film role, which I feel like she's always been around. So to think that her very first feature film role was in 1990 just kind of boggled my mind. She, it was a few years later, she's in Lebowski. But, um... <clears throat> So they're talking about this kind of nerd guy that they know, Steve Buscemi. <laughs> he is perfectly cast for that role. And he's just obsessed with all collecting all this stuff. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the issue is that Julianne Moore stole something and they think Steve Buscemi knows about it. He knows that she stole it. Okay, yeah, it's a little bigger than that. Again, this is not really as important to the plot, but the basic setup is... There's these two rich frat boys, Christian Slater and this other guy, whoever. And the other guy was in competition with Steve Buscemi for some scholarship. Oh, yes, yes. The Penrose, the Penrose Scholarship. And somehow they sabotage Steve Buscemi's chances, Julianne Moore and this other guy, by creating a rumor about him saying he stole stuff from the museum. So they've screwed over this guy named Bellingham, played by Steve Buscemi, and he's mad about it. Because all these rich guys have teamed up to take away his scholarship. Right, which he needed it. Yeah. He, okay. Yeah. But if this is a it's a class struggle. Not to put any themes in this movie that we don't really deserve, but <laughs> it's the rich against the poor. The three rich guys. Uh, again, the cast in this ama is amazing. They got Christian Slater right before he hit it big. Julianne Moore right before she hit it big. And as my wife said, God, Steve Buscemi was even uglier when he was young. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Buscemi is the poor guy Bellingham who is going to be the impetus for all the uh, rage and revenge in this episode yep and there absolutely is some and that's that's what lot 249 is right the title is he, he's got this big giant crate um and they've got a great little you know montage scene of them opening the crate with them fast cuts and zooms of just like you know crowbar crank rip and then all of a sudden all the wood's off and we've got this massive um mummy uh, sarcophagus. I was drawing a blank. What were the mummies in? <laughs> it's a sarcophagus. And it goes into a, and I really appreciate it. I like, I, I'm a fan of lot 
249, he goes in and explains kind of what the embalming process was uh, for mummification. You know, he's like, well, he wasn't thinking anything. He doesn't have a brain. It's one of the first things they remove, you know, through a wire in your nostril. And he's reaching into his, his torso and pulling out different spices and stuff because they remove all your organs. And, you know, these frat guys are just like horrified. Uh, our no-name non-Christian Slater guy is like, ah, I got to go. He's out of there. Christian Slater gets looped in to stay in there and helping him. And, uh, yeah, what he does is he eventually pulls out this scroll and he says, I can't read it. Can you read, you know, ancient, you know, Egyptian hieroglyphs? No, I can't. All right. Yeah, just to paint a picture for people who may not see this movie, Steve Buscemi is the creepy college student who has ordered this mummy on whatever the 1990 version of eBay is, apparently. So he's got a mummy in his dorm room, and he's opening it up, and he basically explains to Christian Slater how you preserve a mummy, how they did it back in ancient Egypt. And basically everything he says is something that's going to happen to a victim later in this episode. They're going to set it up, where the first thing to do is they pull a brain out of the nose with a hook, then they rip it open and stuff it with flowers and spices. So Buscemi's giving all this backstory, and then he finds the scroll inside the mummy, which we're going to know is going to turn the mummy to life. Although I guess it's not really explained in this. Do you think he knew the scroll was there when he ordered the mummy? I think he did. I, I think it's funny too, that setup because his, his cover with these guys is that he's going to sell it for profit. And then he immediately opens it up and proceeds to cut off all of the wrappings and everything. And in my head, I'm like, well, who's going to buy this used mummy now? You've already <laughs> you've used it. But yeah, I think he knew what he was getting. And that was why, uh, he got it, I believe, you know, and it doesn't explicitly say it, but yeah, because he did know what he was reading, right? He says he doesn't know how to read it. Then we've got Christian Slater watching TV, eating uh, Cool Ranch Doritos. I, I notice all these little things. I'm like, oh, he's got the Cool Ranch. Okay. And uh, he can hear him reading, you know, reciting this stuff, which good thing I always laugh on. Uh, movies do it all the time, but what are you going to do? You know, but Apparently, the ancient Egyptians also understand modern-day English because he reads it out aloud in English, and it works. <laughs> I'd never thought of that, but you're right. Yeah, so Buscemi has bought this mummy to get revenge on the frat boys and the frat girl, and he reads the scroll. What is it? Like, uh, rise, O light, come forth, O light, grow, O light, open his eyes, open his eyes. Yep. Yeah, so it's in English. They gave the uh, subtitles. And from here on out, the mummy has come to life that Steve Buscemi has ordered through mail order, and it's going to kill all his enemies. And his enemies are the people who stole the Penrose scholarship from him. It's unique, right? You know, I mean, you've got um, Karloff and, you know, Universal's a mummy, and he's still wrapped up, but his face isn't. You know, he's got the dry face. But usually when you think of a mummy, you think, you know, they're shambling, which he shambles, but they're covered in, you know, the burial wrappings. A mummy's all wrapped up. It's kind of cool this mummy was completely unwrapped before he came back, so he's just this you know, old crusty baked apple of a mummy. Just, you know, I, I, I love the details. Like he's got a broken off finger and. Yeah. Yeah. This movie has some gnarly special effects and we'll definitely talk about them. Like all three of these episodes are fairly gnarly and fairly, fairly graphic. So uh, get ready for some fun descriptions. Yeah, absolutely. Th this is one of the things I always remembered about this movie was the, the mummy's first kill when he, when he goes to our, our, our frat boy who shall not be named 
And like you said, all these burial practices are about to be exacted in real life upon these unsuspecting college students. And this guy gets the brain abortion with the, with the coat hanger. Yeah, again, I was a kid who was not allowed to see R movies. So this was my first R-rated movie kill. This is a good one for your first, for your virgin kill. <laughs> Lee, the character's name is Lee, and the mummy is going to slip into his dorm room, take a coat hanger, and I can already see everyone who's listening has never seen this kind of cringing because I know where this is going. It's going exactly where you think it's going. The mummy curves the coat hook into a hook at the top, finds Lee. Um, I'm trying to think of how graphic I want to be here. The hook goes up Lee's nose, twists around a little bit, and then the brain comes out his nose from the top. It's it's a gnarly scene. Yeah, and it's graphic even when, you know, it. you see it later. Julian Moore comes home, and it's in the fruit dish, just his brain. And it looks, it looks like what I would think a brain pulled out of an ostrich would look like. It's not like a rubber brain toy. It's just raw brain matter. It's... <laughs> It's a it's effective. Yeah, these are the kind of discussions we have here on Horror Month. What a brain in a fruit bowl would look like. <laughs> and I think they hit the nail on the head. Although I, I was a little surprised when I watched it again today. It's actually not as graphic as you think it is when he kills him. You you think you see more than you do. You see the hook go up the guy's nose. You see his, his reaction in his eyes. And then you see all the blood spurting out on the mummy's feet. You don't see the brain come out the nose. But you do see the brain in the fruit dish. Right. And that's effective. That's effective filmmaking right there. What you just said, you think you see stuff that they don't show. And that is the sign of good horror filmmaking, right? A lot of times what is most graphic is what is in our own imagination, especially if you don't have the budget to do something. Yeah. Or the ratings board is not going to let you show something. Between the two of those things, you got to be creative. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, so the first frat boy has been killed, and no one knows he's killed him. Like, why? Who pulled this guy's brain out of him? And then at one point, someone says, "Oh, uh, I, I smelled the killer. They smelled like rotting flowers and spices." And so Christian Slater kind of gets tipped off. Hey, you know, there's a mummy who smells like rotting spices and flowers. So Christian Slater kind of knows what's going on, and it's going to lead to a fun showdown later. But first, we got to have the death of Julianne Moore. She's not going to last too long. No. She doesn't last long at all. She comes right home, and I think it's Christian Slater that sees the mummy leaving. She doesn't see the mummy leaving. She comes in, right? She sees the brain, mm -hmm. and it's like, what is going on? Then she sees the body, and I, I think the first kill is the best because her kill is – and I watched this I watched this a week ago, and you watched it today, so your memory is probably fresher than mine on it, but – he just, like, cuts her up and then, like, wraps her in duct tape, doesn't he? Well, yeah, you got to remember that Buscemi has tipped off everyone at the start of the movie how mummies, how mummies are preserved. First thing you do, put a hook up their nose, pull out their brain. The second thing you do is you eviscerate them and fill them with flowers on the inside. Oh, yeah, he cuts her in the back and then, like, shoves flowers into the cut. Yeah, it's nasty. It's, it's not, again, you can't top a brain out the nose, so don't even try. But this one is pretty good because they've they've called their shot that at some point in the movie, she has placed a little Zuni statue in Steve Buscemi's apartment to kind of frame him for this museum theft. And so now he's especially mad at her. So now he sends his mummy out the second time to kill her. It traps her in her house. She tries to escape. And yeah, he she tries to throw herself out a window. He grabs her by the hair 
takes a pair of scissors right down her back to skin her to open up a, a, a body cavity and starts stuffing flowers in her as if she's a mummy. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'll, again, it's kind of a gruesome movie. It's like it's not super gory. It's kind of comical the way it's done it, but it's you're going to get your money's worth with the gore in this movie. Yeah, the gore that's there is effective. Yeah, and then he wraps her in, like, medical tape, like the stuff you'd use to, like, attach an ace bandit, like that white medical tape. Yeah. Julianne Moore's auspicious debut in movies. Yep. <laughs> now, I- I'm wondering if this was uh, Steve Buscemi's debut. I cannot imagine he was in too many movies prior to this. You know what? That's a good question. I feel like he is in some stuff when he's younger. I, d- I don't think this was his debut, but to be honest, I can't think of what would be. So... Whenever I have this question, I go to IMDb on my phone because it's it's probably my most visited site. Filmography, actor, 168. Uh, and we'll just scroll right to the bottom. He he was in stuff in the 80s. Yeah. Wow. Uh, nothing that I would really remember. He was on an episode of Miami Vice. Wow. <laughs> and I should point out, no disrespect to Steve Buscemi. He is my wife's, one of her all-time favorite actors. She loves this guy. I love this guy. But yeah, it's funny seeing him in this movie. He looks like he's like 22 years old. He's got those snaggle tooth you're used to. They put him in glasses. He's all homely looking. And my wife is like, wow, he was even funnier looking back then. It's to pull out a line from Fargo, you know, just in a general kind of way, funny looking. Yeah, he's a, he he is a unique, a unique looking dude. I actually make a joke sometimes. I'll go to somebody and go, you know, man, you look like, somebody and I'm like oh who and I go you know you look like somebody famous and then you see him get all excited like oh really I look like a movie star yeah who's that guy oh he's in that movie and they're like oh who does it I'm like oh I got it Steve Buscemi you look just like Steve Buscemi <laughs> and you see their face you know dropping very nobody really looks like Steve Buscemi besides himself so they know it's a joke pretty quick but to see their face drop like who is it oh my goodness could it be Josh Hartnett you know maybe it's Ryan no it's Steve Buscemi and this might be his big feature film debut. I'm looking at it. There's TV and stuff, but nothing big. You know, he did. He was in King of New York later on that year, and then he went up from there. I have a question for you, Donnie. You're walking around telling your friends they look like Steve Buscemi. Do you get punched a lot? <laughs> no, no, you got to tell them from a distance. <laughs> okay, so let's get to the end of this lot, 249. So Steve Buscemi's mummy has killed Lee. He killed Julianne Moore. And the only one left is Christian Slater, who's the only one who kind of understands what works. He was there when the when the mummy was uh, brought to life. He was there when Buscemi unwrapped the mummy. So he's like, this fucker's got a mummy that's killing people. So the end of this movie has a nice little twist where Christian Slater is going to come and get revenge on uh, Steve Buscemi. And basically, he has come prepared. He's not going to let the mummy beat him. Christian Slater has brought with him a carving knife. Yeah, an electric one. You get a little a little psycho Christian Slater here, a young psycho Christian Slater. Yeah, and it's got it's got a little bit of um little bit of physical comedy there, you know. I, I still don't think any of the the laughs in any of these would warrant calling this movie a horror comedy, but there's a little bit of kind of zany physical comedy here with him. He basically he's got Steve Buscemi tied up and then he's using this carving knife and he is just decimating this mummy, <laughs> dismembering this mummy. in front of Steve Buscemi. Yeah, this is funny. This is legitimately a funny scene where the mummy keeps trying to attack Christian Slater, but it can't because he is cutting off all of its limbs and fingers and toes. Snapping off his dry fingers. That was a great scene. 
<laughs> so the mummy is quite powerless when Christian Slater and a carving knife get to him. <laughs> so anyway, long story short, yeah, Steve Buscemi is all tied up. Christian Slater is going to kill him. And he's like, he, he starts putting lighter fluid all over Steve Buscemi, kind of a little proto reservoir dogs here. <laughs> I'm going to cut your ear off. But uh, right. he says, give me the scroll that controls the mummy. And Buscemi's like, no, I can't. And Christian Slater's like, I will light you on fire. I've already killed your mummy. Give me the scroll that turns it to life or I'm going to set you on fire. So Buscemi eventually caves and says it's in this drawer, blah, blah, go get it. So Christian Slater gets the scroll, burns it up. And that, in theory, is the end of the movie because there's no more mummy and there's no more scroll. And that's kind of the, the double entendre of it, right, if you will, because you think that's kind of the twist is that Christian Slater, he outsmarted Buscemi. He, he got the scroll destroyed. He destroyed the mummy, uh, burns the thing, and that's the end of it. But it's not, right, because um, we've got Buscemi in there kind of making his escape, right? He's, he's, he's slinking away with his tail between his legs. He's in a cab, right? And mm -hmm. he's kind of chuckling to himself. And the joke's on Slater because he memorized this stuff. And because our two previous victims were murdered and mum and, and the things that you would do to mummify somebody, apparently that's all that needs to happen <laughs> because you say the words and now they're mummies and guess where they show up on Christian Slater's front door. Yeah, this is a nice little creep show touch. I can see why this would be considered a creep show movie. Although, it's not that Buscemi memorized the scroll. It's that he switched the scrolls, if you remember that. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, he had two scrolls. And when Christian Slater grabs the one and burns it up, Buscemi's laughing because that wasn't the right scroll. And he's even telling the cab driver, he's like, I was just thinking of this guy I know. Couldn't distinguish a third dynasty sacred scroll from a piece of post-Alexandrian picto porn. Ha, ha, ha. Exactly. Yeah. Picto porn. I remember that. Yeah. And he's like, I was like, ah, yeah. So at the end of the day, Bellingham, that's Steve Buscemi gets his revenge. He reads his scroll. And even though his first mummy's dead, his other two mummies are not dead. And that's uh, the frat boy and Julianne Moore. And they come to life and they come to Christian Slater and theoretically kill him. And I think they say Bellingham sends his regards. Yeah. And it's, it's very much kind of like what you had mentioned. It reminds me of um, them coming back and, um, the Leslie Nielsen segment of Creepshow. Yep. Sometimes they come back, I believe. No, 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 no. Uh, something to tide you over. Yes, yes. That's it. Yeah, so that's our first story, the mummy. Again, there's three basic stories in this movie. There's the mummy, there's the cat, and there's the gargoyle. That's how we'll refer to them. And we're done with the mummy. Now we're going to go back to our uh, wraparound story, which is Debbie Harry and the little boy. And she's like, wow, that was a good story. And you told it very well. And he's like, he's still stalling. He's like, well, I, I got another one. There's another one about this, this guy who lives in a big old house. And she's like, well, okay, I'll let you read one more story. And with that, we're going to go into story number two, which is called The Cat from Hell. This is the one that Stephen King wrote. I would make the argument, I think this is probably the weakest of the three stories, but I do like the style of it very much. It's very stylistic. I agree. I, I, I agree on both points on there. I think it's the weakest, but I still have a lot to enjoy about it. Mm -hmm. And and this was actually another reason why this is kind of the unofficial Creep Show 3. This was um, originally planned for Creep Show 2, and they cut it. Ah. Um, but, you know, we've got Romero uh, penned the screenplay from a short story by Stephen King. This is one of those episodes or one of those parts of a movie that – when I think back to it, I don't remember thinking it's all that great. But watching it today, I really like the way they 
fade in from scenes when they're doing a flashback and they fade into the present. I'm very impressed by the way they filmed this and the way they presented it. Even though the story itself is not all that interesting, you people should really watch it again and pay attention to the way it's presented. It's actually quite clever. Okay, let's go into the story here. All right, so we already went on, you know, it's based on the short story from Stephen King. And basically, we've got this crotchety old man, right? Well, first, we got this guy coming in on a cab. And, and um, this old guy comes out. This guy's kind of nefarious looking, the guy that comes in on the cab. He's actually uh, a musician named David Johansson, who was an actor as well. And it turns out he's a hitman. And this old guy had hired him. And the old guy is um, William Hickey. He plays this guy named Drogan. And as a kid, he was just a creepy old guy in so many different things. He's in um, National Lampoon's Christmas. Uh, Christmas, yep. He's in, he's in a bunch of stuff. He's just kind of a odd-looking old dude. Anybody listening, all you have to do is look up William Hickey, and you'll know who I'm talking about as soon as you see him. Turns out he wants to hire this hitman to kill a cat, right? The cat from hell, if you will. Yeah, let's talk about this for a second. So you are a huge Stephen King fan. I am a huge Stephen King fan. This story was never in any of his collections, right? No, this is one of them ones that probably went straight to penthouse or something. <laughs> yeah, for people who don't know, that was literally how Stephen King made a living when he was in college. Even in high school, I believe, he'd write these stories and send them to men's magazines like Playboy and Penthouse, and every so often they'd get published. So The Cat from Hell has got to be one of those early stories he wrote because, again, you've never seen it in a book. It's not one you're going to see. It's it's a very unsophisticated story about a hitman hired to kill a cat. But it is from Stephen King. From the mind of Stephen King, absolutely. And what you talked about, these fades, ins, and outs, because the guy obviously is like, come on, man, I'm a professional. You know, you got a ton of money. Um, that's kind of a cool scene uh, where it's kind of, he goes like, you know who I am and I know who you are. You know, it turns out Drogan made all his money in pharmaceuticals and, you know, the drug is highly addictive, psychotronic, uh, you know, like hallucinogenic. It's not a great drug. And the hitman doesn't have a ton of respect for him, right? He's like, well, you know, that thing's just got everybody addicted to it and a bunch of zombies. And, you know, Drogan goes, well, you know, you've killed a lot of people yourself. And I, I like that scene. He's like, well, okay, we did, we've made it clear. We know who each other are. Now, what are we doing here? And he starts fading in. And like you said, it's, it's not the strongest story, and, and it's kind of deceiving because these fade-outs to the, the murders that the cat has done in the past aren't the best scenes I've seen, and certainly not the best you're going to see in this movie. Just kind of, it's just a cat, and the cat's like, meow, and then it's like, Wah! and then all of a sudden the guy's like, oh, my face is scratched, and <laughs> that scene where he rolls the car, where they just had the guy scream while they just rotated the camera five times, while the guy's just like, ah, you know where the budget for this segment went, and it didn't go to that scene. I was going to say, to be fair, that's a very creep show effect, though, where you just spin the camera. Oh, no. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, you make a good point there. All they would have had to have was like the red light behind them and some like Sharpie comic -y zigzags. And then I, I would have appreciated it. <laughs> OK, to, to paint a picture a little bit for people who have never seen this. Yeah, it's a pharmaceutical executive named Drogan who has invented this pill. And apparently over the years, he tested it on cats. So to develop this medical miracle drug, he has killed something like 5,000 cats or something. And so 
this black cat shows up at his house one day and starts killing all his house guests. And again, the special effects are not great. And, and, but he hates the cat from day one. He's like, this cat is here to, for revenge. He's here to kill me. But the way the movie's set up is that the cat kills like his sister. It kills his elderly friend. It kills his butler. It's kind of meant to, to show that maybe this guy's crazy. Like maybe the cat's not killing him. Maybe they were just accidents. So they're trying to go for a little vagueness if the cat's really evil or not, or if this guy's just messed up in the head. And that's, that's the hitman's point of view. You think this cute little cat is killing everybody? And he just kind of laughs. But he does take the job, right? Hey, money's money. A hit is a hit. $100,000. I'm going to take that job, too. Absolutely. So he takes the job, and um, yeah, it turns out that there might be more to this cat than meets the eye. Uh, and again, it's just... It's just a cat. They just show scenes of the cat like meowing and running around, but you know, and then it, then it'll hiss, and all of a sudden he's scratched, and the guy can't do anything with the cat. He can't kill it. He he keeps trying, and he, he ends up pulling out his his ridiculous hitman case, right, with his crazy hitman massive brick of a laser dot sight on his pistol gun. <laughs> that that's what he's going to kill it with, and maybe that's what laser sights were like, and you know, 1990, but it seems a little ridiculous. I mean, this thing is like, the thing is like five, I don't even know, but it's, it's a huge attachment on this thing for this tiny little laser. And, um, he can't hit the cat. So there's something su supernatural about this cat. Cause he's got the thing dead to rights. He's aimed right on it and, it. and he keeps missing, hitting the TV, the cat's jumping around. And again, it's not played for laughs necessarily, but there's a little bit of physical comedy there with this guy just He's got that unique look to him. The guy that plays this hitman, it, it, it reminds me of like he would be great if you took if you decolorize this and cast him in like a, a a film noir that takes place in like L.A. in 1942. He'd be right at home there with a fedora on, right? Yeah, I was gonna say the film almost is film noir the way it's shot in all blues. It's like it's trying to do that. Yeah, and I, I bet it is. I, you know, that's probably I, I think I have original ideas sometimes, but. <laughs> I, I bet I bet that's what they were going for. And this is where it goes to where their budget went, right? <laughs> the, the budget went to the effects at the end, and, and I do appreciate the effects at the end of this thing. Uh, yeah, um, I'm just laughing right now because at the start we said, is this a horror comedy? Oh, no, it's not. They play it straight. But I'm just laughing thinking about this whole Cat from Hell sequence. Like you said, even though it's not played for laughs, it's so over the top with his hitman kit and his garrote, his watch, his knives. He's got poison. Like, he takes it so seriously and he just cannot kill this cat. So, all right, maybe I do see the argument this might actually be a horror comedy. Yeah, that's probably why they're going for it, you know. But it's just, you got to have some comedy in all horror, I think. I, I mean, they're so similar, right? And, and you can hear that. I, I've done a lot of listening to commentaries and stuff. And, and that's, you know, why a lot of people, you know, if you can do comedy, you can do horror. It's all about the punchline, right? Getting the scare. But, um, and, and this one, I would say, yeah, it gets the kind of zaniest. I mean, he's, this dude's at his wit's end. He keeps getting cut up. He's bleeding. His hair's getting messed up. And I can't imagine how frustrating. I would never kill a cat, right? Who can kill a cat? I got to point out, I got to point out one, one inside joke here that I love in this episode. And I bet you didn't catch this one. So the hitman is played by, like you said, David, David Johansson, actor, also known as a sing, singer named Buster Poindexter. Buster Poindexter's famous song was called Hot, Hot, Hot. I'm sure people know that one. I'm feeling hot, hot, hot. Hot, hot, yep. 
There's a scene in this movie where he backs up against the wall and he says, I can't let this cat get to get to me. He says, can't get hot, can't get hot. You make mistakes when you're hot. He literally says hot, hot, hot in a scene. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I missed it. I didn't even realize that's who he was who's saying that. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, like you said, it's hard to describe this movie, this part of the movie, because it's just a hitman trying to kill a cat. And the cat is just walking around doing cat things, not being especially aggressive. But when the cat gets mad, the cat gets mad. And we've learned, I think, at one point that every time when the cat kills, it's midnight. And so now we're going to get to the end of this movie, and I'll give you the honor, because this is a fun effect. Yeah, yeah, right? And we, and we know the time, because he, he looks up, and the cat's on top of the grandfather clock, just meowing at him. He's shooting around. And then this cat starts moving in for the kill. At midnight. At midnight. Yes, exactly. The clock strikes midnight. And this is not scratching your face, rolling your car over. This is not get caught up in your feet and you fall down the stairs. This cat proceeds to, and they show a lot of it. The effect is great. It crawls into this dude's mouth. And again, the, the fake head they used, it looks real. I mean, it, it's a great effect. I'm super impressed with this work here. And it, it crawls all the way in to this dude's mouth, down into his stomach, and you can see you know, him gorging and stuff in his torso. And that is how he dies. And then it shows, I mean, the dude's face is all stretched out and he, he's a goner. So what happens? Well, Drogon returns under the light of day, right? Did, did the kill go through? No, it did not. He goes, we see this guy dead. And what happens? You thought you'd had enough. Well, no, the cat's not dead. All of a sudden, we see the movement again, and we get the same effect in reverse with the cat forcing its way out. And this is like a dummy cat forcing its way out, but it still looks good. But the last shot of that is a real cat pulling, you know, it's like his <laughs> his shoulders and head are out, and he pulls himself. So they shoved a real cat and had him crawl out of this prosthetic head, and it's a, it's such a good effect. So good, in fact— that Drogon cannot get the pills that he has made that he is now addicted to into himself in time, drops them all on the floor and proceeds to die of what I would presume is either fright or some sort of, you know, cardiac arrest or something. Yeah, so the the hitman who was sent to kill the cat does not win. The cat literally leaps up into his mouth, crawls down the hitman into his stomach, kills him from the inside, and then Here's the nasty part. Crawls out of the hitman's mouth. He comes completely right back up out the hitman's mouth after he's dead. And that is a really gnarly effect. Yes, that that effect is so good. <laughs> My first R-rated movie in a, in a theater. I'm so excited this was mine. I got the brain out the nose, and now we got the cat crawling out of David Johansson's mouth. It's such a cool effect. Yeah, and I, I forgot. It ends with... The cat's sitting on Drogon's lap, and Drogon's dead. He died of a heart attack. The cat is just happily cleaning himself off, cleaning all the David Johansson blood off of him. Yep. <laughs> let, Mario, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a movie called The Uninvited? I have. What's the plot of that one? I know the name. So it's a radioactive cat. Escapes the radioactive lab because they didn't even bother to shut the door. And... It's 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 these rich people are doing some nefarious things. They invite some college kids to party on their boat and the cats on there. And it's just it's this um, 
I forget the what you call the breed, but the big orange fluffy cat. Oh yeah. And every time it kills, this horrible monster cat comes out of that cat's mouth to kill and then goes back <laughs> into it. And it's it's a zany, ridiculous movie. Anybody who hasn't seen it, it's streaming on Shutter right now. Not to plug Shutter, but I will plug Shutter because I love Shutter. But <laughs> it's worth checking out. Yeah, it's funny. This movie with the killer cat going in and out of people's mouths followed so soon after Pet Cemetery, which I believe was like a year before this. Yeah, Pet Cemetery came out in '89. Yeah, so it probably made people wonder what the fuck Stephen King has against cats. Yeah, what's the deal with this guy and cats? And then he's got Cat's Eye, um, Sleepwalkers, where they're kind of like <laughs> cat wolves, like wear cats. I love Sleepwalkers. I, I saw that in the theater. I'm so proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Stephen King has some kind of weird cat fetish. Although, in his defense, in Cat's Eye, the cat is the good guy. Yep, the cat is the good guy in Cat's Eye. Yeah, and then in Pet Cemetery, it starts good and then turns really bad. And in this one, it's the cat from hell. And again, I, I'd argue this is probably the weakest of the three segments, but it is the goofiest. You really don't forget the cat going in and out of the guy's mouth. And... Just thinking about it, I was laughing, just the plot of this movie. that Someone wrote a story where the, a hitman trying to kill a cat, so... Yeah. It's not a worthless entry. It's the weakest of the three stories, story-wise, but the style's really cool. Like you said, it's kind of film noir because it's filmed all in blue, and I just like the way they present it. I think it's very well done. Yeah, that, that's the thing. You know, saying it's the weakest is, is more testament. The other two are just, well, especially Lover's Vow. I mean, the other two are just good entries, and mm -hmm. even this one... For what it is, and I think that can elevate a movie like this so much, is just when people play it serious. You know, there's there's some laughs and stuff, but for the most part, we're in this thing. Like, this thing is really happening. It, it's not all played to be a zany over the... Look at the crazy cat from hell. Like, they play it serious, and you can suspend disbelief and get into it with that. And uh, it works. I also, I also believe this movie, this part of the movie, is in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most times a cat is called a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah the hitman has a mouth on him he's not happy with this cat no <laughs> anyway so that's story number two again this is a very short movie it's only 90 minutes long we're already two-thirds of the way through it now we go back to our wraparound debbie harry's like wow that was a that was a my goodness that was a scary story and she's like but you know the ones that i like those are the love stories do you have any love stories and Matthew Lawrence, no dummy, is like, I don't want to get cooked. Oh, yeah, 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 there's a love story in the book. Let me read you my favorite one, the love story. It's about it's about this street in New York where there's a lot of people there during the day, but at night, strange things happen. And that is our setup to, I would argue, one of the greatest horror short stories I have ever seen on screen. I love this story so much. Yeah, I love everything about Lover's Vow. I love the story. And as a gore hound, it's got the best effects in this whole anthology. But the story is just, it's on another level, right? It it, it really is. It's based off of um, it, an adaptation of this uh, Japanese legend called uh, Yuki Ona, um, which was about a ghost. And, and they, they adapted it here and, and tried to modernize it and substituted the ghost for the gargoyle, right? And, and that's how it opens, if I recall, it opens on the gargoyle, right? And then pains down to the street. Yeah. Uh, well, you might, you might want to explain that Japanese story to people because I was doing some research on it today. Apparently, this is a big deal in Japan, the story, this Yukiona. Kind of, do you, have you looked up, do you know exactly what that story is, really? No, I just knew it was a ghost. So, um, you know, I, I'm curious. If you did some research on it, I'd love to hear it. 
Okay, so it, this is based on a 1904 book. That's how old this story is. There's this uh, Japanese woman who you see sometimes when it's snowing out, and she's like the spirit of the snow or something. And she, I, I, it, it's alternate version. Sometimes she's nice, sometimes she's creepy, but it's a woman who isn't really what you think she is. She think, you think she's a real woman, but she's actually a ghost. And again, this goes back to 1904. This is a very prominent Japanese legend. They use it a lot in horror. You'll see it in a lot of Japanese horror movies. And it's adapted here where it's a, not to spoil the story too much, but it's a gargoyle instead of a ghost. Yes. Yeah. And, and like you said, the movie does start with this gargoyle perched above an apartment. It's about this man named Preston. Uh, uh, James Remar is the actor. In a ton of stuff in the 80s, you've probably seen him. Yeah, I love Remar. Yeah, plays an artist named Preston. And it starts with this gargoyle on the building above him who looks down into his studio as he works. And I don't know what kind of... He's like a popsicle stick artist at the beginning, apparently. <laughs> it looks like he's making like... Like he's in college and he's in his engineering class and he's trying to make a bridge without using glue that can hold up, you know, five pounds or something. And it doesn't work. So he just smashes it all to bits. And, you know, what does he do? He heads down to the bar. To meet his agent. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And his agent's like, man, I, I had enough, dude. Like when, when you got to. Yeah, you suck. You got to produce, you know, you, you can't you can't be the starving artist, right? Starving artist doesn't get paid. So he's wallowing in his own self-pity, and he, he's down there, you know, he's got the local bar fly there who's just passed out drunk, which, what an odd thing. You got this drunk, because the, the guy's locking up shop, and he goes, yeah, just leave him here. Let's just leave the bar fly here <laughs> asleep at the bar and lock him in there and just hope he doesn't wake up and drink us out of house and home. <laughs> they were more trusting back then. Yeah, right? Just not a smart business decision. Okay, yeah. For Okay, for people who've never seen this one, I really got to get this story perfect for you, just because I really want you to understand why this is such a cool story. It is indeed a love story. We're going to get there in a second. So Preston, the failed artist, none of his stuff is selling. His agent has fired him. He says, you're worthless. You make no money. I can't represent you anymore. So Preston has hit rock bottom. He's at the low point in his life. This is James Remar. And... One night he's just out drinking, basically going to drink himself to death because someone says, uh, you know, you know, Da Vinci and all them, they never got famous with an agent. Why do I need a, why do I need an agent? And someone said, well, they died. That's how they got famous. So, yeah, that's the bar fly. He lifts his head just for the second. How did they get famous? They died. And then he passes back out. So that's the implication. Preston may be trying to drink himself to death here. He just doesn't care anymore. And as he's leaving the bar that night, he's leaving with the bartender. They lock this bar fly in the, in the bar, so it's just the two of them. As they walk out to an alley behind the bar, something big is going to happen to poor Preston that's going to change his life. So James hears this, this commotion, and I believe, does the guy get decapitated? Yeah, this is brutal. The, the bar owner gets slashed across the face, slashed, his hand gets ripped off, and then he gets decapitated by something. Yeah, and... He turns and sees this horrifying, completely, and again, I love these older movies, right? There's no CGI here. This is all practical effects. There's this enormous gargoyle. And, you know, you've got to get to where this story's going somehow. So far be it from me to complain. But I do always, I thought of it when I was a kid, and I'm just like, why would it do that? But whatever. So he is begging for his life. After he's he's tried to get into the door, he's trying to wake up the sleeping drunk, let me in, let me in. 
I don't know how he thinks that drunk could let him in because they chained and locked the door from the outside. So that drunk is locked in there. But hey, you're being, you know, stalked by a gargoyle that just absolutely eviscerated your friend. So, you know, I would probably do the same thing. And he turns around and starts groveling and begging for his life. And then it turns out this gargoyle can speak. And it tells him that he needs to make it a promise that he will never speak of it, tell anybody what happened, or tell anybody that the gargoyle is able to speak. And that is what he he makes him promise. And he promises it, and then it slashes his chest and flies off into the night. Yeah, I got to talk about this scene because you may be hearing the word gargoyle, and you may think it's this innocent little thing. Like, I've played Dungeons and Dragons. I've played Heroes of Might and Magic. Gargoyles are little pussy monsters. They're weak. They're not there. They're, you can easily defeat them. The gargoyle in this is not. It's like eight feet tall. It's got these huge claws and fangs. And it's scary. It's a scary mofo. And I wrote down the exact promise he makes. He tells Preston. Preston's like, please, please don't kill me. Because he's already seen his best friend decapitated. And Preston and the gargoyle says your life in exchange for a promise. If I let you go, you must swear you'll never say you saw me. Never tell anyone. Never repeat what I've said. A promise forever. So that's the deal. Preston can live as long as he never, ever, ever, the entire rest of his life mentions this gargoyle attack. And the gar like uh, Donnie said, the gargoyle scratches him, gargoyle flies off and Really, that's the end of the night. Preston has been spared. He has no idea why. But he, now he has this terrible secret that this gargoyle killed his friend. And this gargoyle, apparently, from up on top of the building, is alive. That's kind of the creepy thing here. And it, it is creepy. The, I mean, this, like you said, it's it's huge. It's It's got to be, what, eight or nine feet tall? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's way taller than him. Yeah, maybe even more. Maybe ten feet tall. Because, yeah, it's almost like twice his height. And... Yes. So as he's walking home, he runs into this girl, Carola, and he is understandably a little a little on edge. And he kind of scares the heck out of her. And I can't remember why he takes her to his house. It's because he has just seen someone murdered and he sees this young woman. This is Radon Chong, one of my favorite actresses of that era, playing Carola. Yeah, she's just walking down the street and she looks nervous. She's lost and she it's a bad area of town. So he basically... <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, he's trying to protect her, but he protects her by abducting her, which I always thought was funny. <laughs> right, he abducts her and he is acting very manic. So she is not very comfortable with the situation, but, you know, any port in a storm, she also doesn't feel very safe in this area. So he does take her home with him. He says she can call a cab from his house. That's the, That's the premise. That's how he gets her to go in there. And she does end up staying there. And in the morning, he wakes up, and he's he's much more reserved and less manic. And, you know, long story short, throughout the rest of this segment, we see moments where he immediately starts, you know, tempting fate. Mm -hmm. I won't talk about it, <laughs> but you never told me I couldn't draw about it. So he starts drawing this image of the gargoyle's face and, and he throws it away and turns out, you know, now him and, and, and is, is it Carla? Carla. Yeah. This, let, Carola. Me, let me talk about her for a second because she's very important to this. So Carla is just this innocent young woman who's walking alone at night. He talks her into coming back to his place, calls her a cab. They end up flirting with each other that night. 
and they they're kind of about the hots for each other. She's a, a impressed that he's an artist and that he saved her. The, the important thing is she sees the scratch across his chest and she starts nursing him. She starts rubbing alcohol on it and helping him nurse his wounds. And it ends up with them making love that night. They kind of start an affair. They have they sleep together that night. And the next morning, Carola wakes up and she's like, you know, I really needed that last night. That was so important to me. And he's like, oh, last night was a nightmare. And she's all hurt. And again, this is a very legitimate love story. It's played very straight, the love stuff. And that's why it's so powerful later. Again, you know something horrible is going to happen. This is a Tales from the Dark Side. But you really do believe that Carola likes him. He likes her. And, uh, you know, he, he hugs her and he says, you know, if you need protection, you can come here again, blah, blah, blah. And uh, so they basically just start an affair. And it's going to lead to a very quick love affair where at a certain point she's going to start moving in, right? Because she needs a place to stay. Right. And like you said, they're tempting fate. He's drawing stuff about the gargoyle. She's looking around. You know something bad. This is going to be Bluebeard. Don't look. Don't open the closet. But that's where we're going here. Right. And it takes takes a while to get there. It's not – this isn't an overnight thing. So we, we then move forward basically through their lives that they built together. And now we've got our, our friend here, Preston, is finally finding success. Through Carla. She helped him. Yep. Yep, she helps him in they're at his first art exhibition and lo and behold the drunk from the bar shows up and we have a little bit of an altercation here where he implies that Preston must know more about that night and he's like, "You know what? Man, I could get drunk off your breath. Like you got to get out of here. Get out of here. Don't bring this up now. Look at what I got going on." And he pushes him to the side, you know. Ignores that. I got to move forward. And he continues to find success. They they end up, you know, we move through their lives. They get married and we end up now we're down the road. They're they're happily married. They're like you said, they, they play this very well. Like you care about them and, and the relationship feels genuine. Yeah. So they've gone really far in their lives that apparently Carola knew some art owner who owned a studio. She recommended this guy, Preston. It helps his career, yada, yada, yada. All of a sudden, Preston becomes very famous. You know, they have this whole long love affair. She's like, I love you. He's like, I love you. You helped me. You saved me. And then she's like, will you will you love me forever? And he's like, yeah, I will love you forever. And she's like, will you love me and my child? And he's like, oh my God, you're pregnant? Like that first night they met, they made love that she ended up pregnant. So they get married they uh, form a successful partnership. She's his manager. He becomes a big artist, like the biggest artist in New York. They make lots of money. They have two beautiful kids. And we flash forward. He has managed to hold the secret for 10 years. He's drawing the gargoyle. He's hiding his, his drawings. Again, this is not going to end well. You're not entirely sure where it's going to go, but it's going to be very horrific. Now we fast forward 10 years. It's their 10-year anniversary and they're going to have some party that night of the night they met and all the success they've had over the years. And they're two beautiful little eight and nine year old children. And this is where the shit's going to hit the fan on the 10 year anniversary. Does she do anything to spark him to tell her? Or he just tells her because he loves her. No, there's one scene where we see her looking through his desk drawer and she sees a gargoyle painting and she kind of puts it back away. Like she doesn't want to see that. And there's an obvious reason why she doesn't want to see that. So, yep. yeah, so she never baits him or anything, but he, you know, he wants to tell her. He wants to tell what happened. He wants to tell her the story of how they met. 
and it's really going to go about as poorly as a movie can go. Again, their 10-year anniversary, they're going out to dinner for a celebration night, and this is where it's all going to come to a head. What he does is he starts showing her, you know, these photos. He's got photo upon photo of gargoyles. He's got a gargoyle sculpture that he's made, and... She's kind of horrified by it. You're, you know, this is not like the rest of your art. You're drawing, you know, these are dark. These are scary. Why are you showing me this? And she asked him, why would you show me this? And he's got a noble reason. I love you. You are everything to me. And I want you to always be everything to me. This is a big thing. And it's the one thing that I've never told you. And I, I, he basically tells her, I want you to know and have all of me that there is. And 10 years ago, the night we met, I met this gargoyle. It killed the bartender at the bar and it was going to kill me. She's and you can, she's like horrified. Like, what are you talking about? And he tells her, it made me promise never to tell anybody, never to speak of what happened and what it said. And she's upset. Why would you tell me then? Why would you tell me then? Yeah. I got to say the acting in this scene kills me. And it killed me when I saw this in 1990, it's killed me every time I've watched it. I watch, I mean, I saw it again today. It killed me. It's played so straight. He just, yep. he's hinting. The night I met you, I almost died. And she doesn't want to talk about it. He's like, I just want to tell you. And she's like, you can't tell me. You can't give me anything I don't already have. I love you. And he's like, yes, but you saved me. You saved me for myself, Carola. I have to tell you the truth. Here's the exact speech. Because you're the most important thing in my life, Carola. You've brought me 10 years of happiness, 10 years of success, 10 years of a perfect life. I'm telling you because I love you. You deserve everything I can give you. And the only thing I've never given you is the truth. And if you watch this, you can see in her eyes, she starts to get sad. She doesn't want to hear this where this is going. And again, if you haven't seen this before, you can kind of guess where it's going. That that gargoyle is coming back. And I don't know, did you, when you saw this for the first time, did you call the ending? No, I knew the gargoyle was coming back, but not in the way that it did. Yeah, see, I would have thought the gargoyle was going to come and kill her. Right. You spoke, so now I'm going to take away the one thing you love, I'm going to kill Carol. That's where you think it's going. That's exactly where I thought. That's not where it's going. Okay, so I'll set you up for the very final reveal where she, he tells her and he hands her the gargoyle statue. He says the exact same thing. He tells her the whole story. This is how I met you. The thing tried to kill me. It killed my friend. This is what happened this night. Now you know the truth. And she breaks down. Again, really good acting by Ray Don Chong. She starts crying and she walks away and goes to the window and turns her back to him and she's sobbing. She's sobbing. And this is where the turn comes and I'll give it to you where she just finally turns at him and he's like, why are you sad? This is like the truth. I'm telling you the truth. And she turns at him and screams, you promised you'd never tell. And it's so effective. You promised you'd never tell. And what we see now is a transformation. And what an effective transformation it is. The voice starts to change. We start to see, I mean, we're talking skin is breaking and gargoyle flesh is pushing through it it turns out that she is and has been that gargoyle this entire time and it is a drawn out transformation yeah this transformation is gnarly and it's nasty and you got stuff shooting out of radon chong 
claws and horns and beaks and it's just nasty cutting through her flesh these little horns coming out of her but the thing that i really caught this last viewing is that she's not mad she's sad and she's scared she loved this guy she really wanted to love this guy we get the impression maybe this has happened before over the years she has had lovers over the years and it always fails but she really thought this guy was going to be able to keep the secret and yeah, it's so gnarly and nasty, and she's so horrified. She starts screaming, I loved him. I cannot believe this happened. You ruined it. And she says, you broke your promise, you idiot. I loved you. You broke your vow. And you hear the children screaming out in the back. And this is the thing that always gets me is that he, what he does is he turns to his kids. His two kids are screaming in the bedroom there because they hear all these transformation and screaming and blood and viscera. And he walks towards them. And she, as a mother, gets in his way because she is going to protect her two now gargoyle children from him. Yeah, and that reveal is great because that, I, I, again, I didn't see coming. And, again, we got the practical effects. These two little cowering gargoyle children hugging, you know, brother and sister hugging each other. And like you said, that's what's so great. And that that's why this one stands out as the best. You know, we've got the love story throughout the beginning, but... It is, it's not this big, scary, I've been the gargoyle all along. It's, it's sad. It's terrible. It's, yeah. They have the two crying little gargoyle babies. Like they're a little five and six year old gargoyle with tears hugging because now they have to be gargoyles again. Yep. Oh. Yeah. And poor uh, Preston is like screaming, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And she's like, it's too late. And he's like, Carola, I loved you. And she's like, I loved you too, but you broke your vow and that has sealed your destiny. And she's got him wrapped up in her wings. Oh, yeah. And she rips his throat out, right? She bites him and tears his throat out. Yep. As she's crying. She loves him. That's the thing. He's been not just banging a gargoyle. They loved each other. This is a true love story like Debbie Harry wanted. And, and she knows she has to kill him because it's never going to work. So she mercy kills him by ripping his throat out and she's crying and it's, I've never seen anything like this in a horror movie before. Me either. It's so good. Oh, man. I can just, yeah, between the effects of her transforming, like those wings popping out of her back. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> it's so gross. And then she protects her babies. That's her whole thing. And she's got these two little babies. And it ends with Preston dead on the ground, her crying and hugging her two little gargoyle children who now know they all have to go up to the roof and be uh, statues again. Yep. Turn into stone. And that's literally how it ends, right? We end with, we pan up to the top of the building, and there's Carola, who the, the gargoyle, now with two little gargoyle babies. She's got her arms wrapped around. Yeah, absolute best segment of this. I mean, the other two are right, but they're not even close. Lover's Vow is the, the whole reason that I was excited that you wanted to cover this movie. It's, it's the thing that I always think of as soon as I think of this movie is that gargoyle. Yeah, I mean, that is a showstopper. That is how you end an anthology. And it's funny, we just I just did an episode on, uh, like I said, Trilogy of Terror. And in that one, the third story is the big one as well. It's this really famous one about a doll who attacks a woman. I mean, that is a showstopper. I mean, that's nothing next to this one. Lover's Vow is a showstopper. Yeah. <laughs> and I should point out, once again, written by the guy who made Beetlejuice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so do you have any more thoughts about Lover's Vow? I mean, I could talk about this one forever. Just the themes, the, the way it's presented, the acting. I just, there's not a single flaw in Lover's Vow. It's so amazing. 
Yeah, same thing. You know, everybody in it is great. You know, it's acted well. The story is excellent. It's paced well. You know, something like this, you couldn't make a 90-minute movie. But for for the time we have, it's perfect. And me, I'm a gorehound. The the effects, the gargoyle looks great, but... For me, it's it's those effects of her of the gargoyle busting out of her human skin and and what they show and it's lit well and it, it's it just every single thing about this segment slaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the thing one of the things on staff picks is I try not to recommend gory movies to people. Like I always pride myself on, I like I say I recommend horror movies to people who don't like horror movies. So I I hesitate to talk about the gore too much, even though there's a lot of gore in this movie, I don't think it's the kind that's really would scare people off. Like it's kind of like, it's not gratuitous gore. It's gore. That's absolutely necessary. Right. It's a monster. Yeah. It's a monster. Yeah. Not like somebody's guts being it's human, you know, you know, some of the stuff like torture porn stuff. This is nothing like hostile or, Mm -hmm. you know, cabin fever or anything. Yeah, I mean, you got to transform five foot tall Radon Chong into a ten foot gargoyle. Do the physics, and a lot of things have to be bursting out of flesh. Sorry, that's just the way it goes. That's how it goes. <laughs> but I think she's so good in this. I've I I I wanted to look up some interviews with her, see if she ever talked about this, because I love her performance. I love everything about her in Lover's Vow. But lest we forget, this is not the end of the movie, because we got to wrap up the wraparound story. That's right. We've got a we've got our epilogue. With with the best actor in, in the whole film, Blondie. <laughs> so so what happens to poor Blondie? Does she indeed cook the youngest Lawrence child? She she tries. So we go back and you know she she tells him how she appreciates that story and that you know that is a great love story and you know he does what he's been doing the whole movie right but there's one more there's one more she goes no kid there's there's no more time she starts opening it and, and he starts telling a story anyway. You know, well, there's this kid and he was filling in for his older brother on the paper route. And, you know, long story short, right, he's telling his story and she realizes it. And she goes, yeah, well, we all know how this one ends. No fair. This one's no fun. And this might be the weakest part of the whole movie, in my opinion. He goes, what you didn't know is that he had marbles in his pocket. (laughs) And he throws the marbles and she just is like. Oh no, I stepped on the marbles that you threw and <laughs> fell onto my my butcher block cuttery board that's full of not even knives but like spears, <laughs> like little stabby things and you know, you, you guys if you haven't seen this you can probably tell where this is going, you know. She's all stuck on this things, you know, impaled. He runs, he reaches for the key, gets the key, unlocks it. What a twist. He pushes her into the oven. <laughs> Yeah, poor Deborah Harry meets a bad fate in this movie that she is cooked alive in her own oven. Yep, and then he's got that great last line. He breaks the fourth wall. He he pulls out the cookies, uh, which she complained about earlier. I thought you loved chocolate chip cookies. Well, he he doesn't love getting fattened up to die, but he grabs a chocolate chip cookie and and looks at the camera and goes, don't you just love a happy ending? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, admittedly, the wraparound is the weakest, especially the reveal, which... I always forget takes place over about 15 seconds. It's so quick, the ending. It just wraps up. and then, But I like that. I just love a happy ending. And then we go right into the end credits. Yep. And I don't know if I'd love it anyway, but it's – and I, I don't think Lover's Vow could have been anywhere else in this, right? She says it herself. You did save the best for last. Like they know that it is, but it's just so weird to go from something like that 
to that ending. Yeah, I think Lover's Vow is so depressing. You absolutely cannot end a movie with that. Like, I'm I'm thinking of this structurally. Lover's Vow cannot be first or second. It can't be the wraparound. So if you have a wraparound, you have to have a wraparound that's a little comic just to break the sadness of Lover's Vow. Yeah, that's a good point. So you don't walk out of the theater just mm-hmm. depressed. And it's funny, I was reading some trivia on this movie that the order of the segments that are shown in the movie are not the way they were filmed or intended, that they move stuff around, but... Correct. So do you know what the order was? There's no way Lover's Vow could have been anything but third. Yeah, no, I don't know. I thought I thought that too when I read that, and I wonder if I did some more research if I could find it. You know, they, they did some test screenings, and to help with the flow of the movie, they moved it around, but yeah, what... I mean, just the fact that she says you saved the best for last. I feel like Lover's Vow. I mean, anybody with half a brain would save that for last. So so what is it? They had Cat from Hell first and Lot 249? Okay. Well, I mean, it, yeah, this is basically a logic puzzle. If three has to be in the same place, <laughs> the only possible you know, alternative is one and two had to be flipped. So at one point, this started with the Cat from Hell and then went to Lot 249. Yeah, maybe it's just... You know, I don't know. Maybe if I, I don't know if I saw it starting with Captain Hell, I'd be like, what is this? <laughs> you know, is this what I got myself into? I don't know. Yeah, no, I totally think they have the optimal mix. And again, I have almost nothing bad to say about this movie. I can nitpick a lot of movies, especially horror movies. I can't nitpick this one too much other than to say the uh, wraparound is kind of weak. But like for the stories themselves... I think they're all fairly solid. I really can't say how it would have improved most of them other than you, you may have wanted to fleshed out Lot 249, give it another 20 minutes. But again, you have to have three movies in one, so you can't really do that. But again, it's not a masterpiece of a movie. It's not like the greatest horror movie I've ever seen. But if you've never seen Lover's Vow in particular, you have to see that at least once in your life if you're a horror fan. Absolutely. This is a movie that's competently shot, competently, you know, the screenplay is solid, you know, are there better movies? Absolutely. But it, it it does what it sets out to do. Lover's Vow is amazing. And you're not going to hate yourself for watching the first two. I, I, I recommend this movie to anybody, whether, you know, you're a horror hound like like we are or, you know, you just want to. It's Halloween and you want to. What's a cool, you know, spooky anthology I could watch? Well, Tales from the Dark Side. Yeah, it's funny. When I was planning out Horror Month. I try to have a good mix. I want some that are super intense. I want some that are a little goofier. I try to throw some TV movies in there, some anthologies. I wasn't entirely sure Tales from the Dark Side was hardcore enough for Horror Month. I wasn't entirely sure I was going to use it or not. Then, but then re-watching it and talking about it with you, I absolutely think I made the right choice in doing it. So this movie is actually better than I remember it. And again... I've seen it hundreds of times, so I was even impressed by it today. So that's that should say something about why I think people should watch this movie. I love that. Don't you love that when you see a movie you've seen so many times, but it's been a few years, and you're like, man, I hope. I just recently did that. Have you ever seen Crawl? Oh, yeah. Crawl is one I have researched for staff picks. I have thought about that. I love it. We just covered it on um, on Psychotronica, and I, I went to rewatch it. You know, because it was my suggestion. I was like, man, they're going to hate me. Neither of the other hosts had seen it. And I was like, this is all nostalgia for me. And they still didn't like it, but I still loved it. And I liked it better on rewatch. So I love it when that happens with something, you know, because it, it certainly doesn't happen with everything that I watched when I was 10. Yeah, it's funny. I have a complicated relationship with Crawl. I will make you jealous and say I saw that in the theater. Oh, my God. Yeah, one of my friends for his birthday party when he was nine, we went to see Crawl. 
That's awesome. Yeah, that was the coolest movie ever when you're nine years old. That's like the greatest movie. And then I saw it years later, and I'm like, I still like parts of this movie, but it's too slow for me. So now I have a very complicated relationship because there's stuff I really love about Kroll and stuff I don't. And it's been in the back of my mind if I want to do it on staff picks or not. I'm thinking about it still. Yeah, I say give it a rewatch and make the decision based on that. Not that you asked me on <laughs> my thoughts on it, but yeah. Yeah, give it a rewatch, make the decision. Um, I totally see what you're saying on it, though. Yeah, there's there's some pacing issues and, and it, it does – it seems both rushed and overly long at the same time, and it's it's not a good place to be when you're a, a fantasy movie like that. But it does have the greatest weapon in movie history, the glaive, which I love. Uh, it's basically the never-ending story, but with a glaive. That's how I describe yep. it. <laughs> okay, I'm going to let you go in a minute. I uh, Anything else you have to say about Tales from the Dark Side or anthologies, or do you want to plug your podcast again so people can know where to find you? Yeah, sure, sure. So, yeah, um... Final words on the Tales from the Dark Side of the movie. Mario, thank you so much for suggesting it. You know, we were going back and forth. Well, I'll be a guest, but what should we cover? And I'm, I'm really happy that you suggested this one. Um, it got me to watch it again, and I, I, I love it, and I loved uh, talking about it with you. Um, for anybody that wants to check out what we do, you know, you can check uh, out the podcast that I host with my friends Drew and Emily. It's Psychotronica Podcast. You can find that on iTunes, Spotify. You can follow us on Instagram as well. We have an Instagram for the pod, and it's just simply Psychotronica Pod. And uh, yeah, we'd love to uh, we'd love to hear anybody's thoughts on any episodes. Come check us out. And uh, Mario, again, thanks again for uh, letting me come in on here and spend some time talking to you. I had a really great time talking this movie with you tonight. Yeah, absolutely. That was a lot of fun. And do you ever have guests on that podcast? So we're talking about it. We just, like I said, we've covered, we're about to cover our third movie. We do a movie a month and then like a mini episode every couple weeks too. So we're still really new at this. Um, we've had like a couple of interviews, but yes, we are talking about starting to have some guests on there. And, um, you know, if you're open to it, once we, we start doing that, get our, get our feet wet in there and start doing it, I, I would absolutely love to have you come on an episode with us. Yeah, absolutely. I am no stranger to whoring myself out to every podcast who will have me. <laughs> if you ever want to guess to talk about any movie ever, just let me know. All right. Awesome. And again, everybody, thank you for listening. Once again, I'm Mario Lanza. This is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be out there searching for more horror movies that deserve a little more love, and I'll sure as hell be keeping my vows and not talking about the gargoyle as I'm researching. <laughs> I'll talk to you guys later. Thanks for listening. Bye. What's wrong? I'm not making this up. I'm telling you the truth. You promised you'd never tell! God. You broke your promise, you idiot! I loved you!